Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This hour, we explore something called fertility fraud, something you may not have heard of yet. There's actually a new Iowa law to attack the problem of fertility fraud. And joining me this half hour to talk about it, Courtney Crowder is Iowa columnist and senior writer for the Des Moines Register. Welcome back to our program, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Also with you in the studio, Mark Hansen. Uh, Mark is the subject of uh, a couple of your stories in the Register. Mark, welcome to you. Thank you for having me as well. Mark, before we we have you talk about your story, which is so interesting and painful, as we learned from Courtney's writing and interviews with you, Courtney, I'd like to have you introduce us to fertility fraud. Uh, What is it? Right. Fertility fraud is sort of the widest umbrella of discovering that your biological parents are not actually your biological parents. So we have doctor-donor deception, which is what Mark is here to talk about, where a fertility doctor uses his own sperm in a deceptive manner. Um, Mark's mother was not aware that the doctor used her own sperm. And we see fertility fraud happen that way, doctor using his own sperm, but also a clinic mismanaging records. So you don't receive the egg or the sperm that you picked out. A deceptive use of egg or sperm that is not what you and your partner decided to use. And then we have misattributed parentage, which is when adoption is kept from the child when a child is a product of rape or incest, and that is kept from them. Um, But fertility fraud looks at when a couple is having difficulty creating a life and they want to do so, they have to rely on doctors and clinics and Unfortunately, those doctors and clinics, they lie. And so Iowa's new law criminalizes that lie. Okay, and this has been happening all across the country, obviously, but state laws one after another, and and Iowa's sort of at the forefront of criminalizing this, putting in a law in effect to, to stop this, Courtney? Correct. Yeah, we are at the forefront. We're not the first person to have a law. California had the first law in 1996. And then we've seen states ramp up in the past two years, passing bills that seek to attack fertility fraud and criminalize it. But Iowa has done some very important things in their law. Here in Iowa, there's no statute of limitations. So obviously, As you'll hear from Mark, so many of the children who are products of doctor donor deception or fertility fraud, they find out because they bought a 23andMe or they bought an ancestry kit. They spit in that vial and the letter comes to their house only to discover that the story they've thought was true for their whole life is not true. The reality of discovering this fraud, it happens so much later in life. And so Iowa has done The first thing that's the most important thing, which is to completely do away with statute of limitations. And Iowa has also made the civil penalty quite high, $200,000 for doctors found doing this kind of deceptive behavior and also criminal penalties. They could have their medical license pulled. That's very important to a lot of people who are children of doctor donor deception. Um, And the clinic could have their license pulled. And just there's all these little nooks and crannies to Iowa's law that's really important and really special to the victims of this type of crime. One being that 
if a doctor uses his own sperm fraudulently, he is liable for uh, higher education for the child. He or she can also not uh, claim that child as their own. So Iowa really took the time to look at the victim stories and what victims of this have asked for. And they figured out a way, Annette Sweeney really is the person who drove this through, but they figured out a way to make sure that all of those particularities got into the bill. And so it's, it is a important bill that now is the map for the rest of the states. Mm-hmm. And another facet of this, perhaps you could explain a little bit more, would be that uh, someone convicted of uh, fertility fraud would be also listed as a, as a sex offender. Yes, yes. See, there are so many parts of this law that are so uh, well thought out. That is true. Um, So someone convicted of fertility fraud, so using their own sperm if they're a doctor, now has to register on the sex offender registry at the highest level. They are a tier three offender. Um, And my understanding of why that was put in is because this is such a personal crime, even though it feels impersonal, right? It's, It's test tubes, it's vials, it's... Um, petri dishes. It is still so personal. These are couples who are at their most vulnerable state. These are couples who desperately want a child. They want a child so bad that they are seeking out medical help and medical advice, and their trust is being taken advantage of. It's heartbreaking, and it's personal. And yes, it is a sex offense. Mm -hmm. Courtney Crowder, the subject of a couple of your articles um, on this uh, a particular case of fertility fraud is with you in the studio, Mark Hansen. Um, Mark, let's turn to you now and, and have you walk us through the story that uh, Courtney writes about so well in, in her stories. Where does this begin for you? So in 2013, I found out that my dad, the man who raised me, was not my biological father. And um, a little bit of research by myself landed on the doctor that provided assistance to my parents in conceiving. And then follow-up, actually three DNA tests, confirmed my suspicions that the the doctor was indeed my biological father. It was at the very end of your, your father's life, Rodney Hansen, that can, can you just tell us that story, um, how it was revealed to you? It must have been a, an amazing surprise. Sure. So several months before my father passed away, uh, he was suffering from Alzheimer's, and we were in a doctor's office, and he started talking to me. And it was a it was a good day for my dad to tell stories, apparently. And I don't know if the filter was off that day, but he went on to explain that he couldn't get my mother pregnant and gave me some details about what had happened. And so then I, I uh, asked my mother what the situation was, and she filled in some of the details and said that the uh, she had taken in a sample, a semen sample of my dad to the doctor's office, and the doctor proceeded to take it to the back room to mix something with it to make it work better. And she didn't know what that was, but I had a sneaking suspicion of what it was that made it work better. And that's when I started doing a little bit more research and I landed on the fact that uh, the doctor was my actual biological father. This doctor in question returned with his own semen rather than the semen of uh, who you thought was your biological father. And your father, close to his uh, last days, told you this. What was your reaction when you first heard this from uh, what you believed to be your biological father? 
Well, it was quite shocking for sure. It uh, rocked my core. Um, it was, uh, I didn't know what I was for the longest time. I didn't know if either one of my parents was my parents because my mother didn't have any pictures of her being pregnant uh, back in the mid-60s. Uh, women didn't necessarily do that. And so uh, there were some sleepless nights. There was a lot of uh, tossing and turning. And uh, I guess there was some soul searching that I undertook to try to figure out who I was. And and I've come to the realization that I am who I am, and nobody can change that. Uh, it was an interesting twist that my biological father is was not who I thought it was, obviously. Uh, so that added some interesting facets to my life, I guess you could say. Mark, when you found this out, of course, a logical step would be to try to get in contact with your, find the motivations uh, of the uh, uh, the doctor in this case, your real biological father, he is, he's passed away. That can't be found out now, right? That's true. He's, he passed away in 1983. So that information is long gone. Have you tried to contact uh, any members of his family? These, these are, these are rel- blood relatives of yours, right? Yeah. So the doctor had five children with his wife and one of them has passed away. So there are four remaining biological children of of the doctor and his wife, and two of them live in the Des Moines area. So I thought, what should I do with this information? I thought long and hard, and I think it was probably uh, close to a year. I decided to write these people a letter introducing myself. I, I landed on the fact that it was my moral obligation to let these people know that they had at least one half sibling in the world. And uh, I don't know how many others there are, but I knew that there was at least one. So I wrote them a letter, uh, and it was a heartfelt letter. I spent considerable time on this, uh, explaining the situation and trying to um, give them enough information. And I knew that it was a big surprise, and I didn't want to come on as uh, too strong. And I, I explained that I didn't really want anything. And uh, again, it was my moral obligation to let them know. And unfortunately, uh, these stories seem to go one of two ways. The, the other family members are either welcoming with open arms and think it's a good situation, a nice surprise, or it goes the other way, as my situation did, where the siblings don't want to have anything to do with me, unfortunately. Did they respond at all? Well, the initial response, Ben, was the fact was one of them came to my house and visited with me. She pulled up in front of my house, and we had a three-hour conversation in my house, and it went quite well. And she said my mannerisms were remarkable to her because they reminded her of uh, our father. And the the pleasant the conversation was very pleasant, and we left the conversation with that she was going to discuss it with her family members. And uh, unfortunately, they had a discussion as a family and decided that they uh, didn't want to pursue a relationship with me. In fact, they wrote me a letter, a certified letter that came to my house. Part of the letter was they they felt they had nothing to share with me. And I find that remarkable because we have this, half of our DNA is the same. I'm Ben Kiefer. More after a short break. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. 
Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. If you just joined us, my guest, uh, Mark Hansen, the subject of uh, stories of my other guest, Courtney Crowder, uh, of the Des Moines Register. Um, and it's, you know, listening to this for the first time, Mark and Courtney, it's, it's and I'm sure... Mark, for for you more than for someone listening to your story, it's just mind-bending. It's hard to grasp what you're saying and how, I guess, your world shifts, um, has to shift when you find this sort of DNA out, this sort of DNA surprise. Courtney, this aspect is especially troubling, isn't it? Absolutely, because... Nothing has changed, and yet your whole world is completely different. You know, you can look in the mirror, and it's the exact same image. But what's going on in your heart and mind couldn't be further from what the truth was yesterday. You've got to figure out a new way of living that is respectful to the person who raised you, the family who raised you, the people who loved you, the people who were and are your cousins still, but then also find this new path forward with the truth. Um, you know, one of the things that I love about Mark's story is that the doctor was Jewish. How do you move forward when you're a Norwegian, you know, a Norwegian kid from rural Iowa who has not the first thing to know about what it means to be Jewish? Um, Mark signed up and took some intro to Judaism classes you got to find those ways to connect with your new reality and respect and understand that how you were raised is still the truth. Yeah. Mark, talk a little bit about coping. And this has been how many years? Uh, remind us how many years since you found this out? The initial news came in 2013, and I had my DNA tests, I believe, in 2014. So eight, nine years now I've known. Tell us about that journey in, in the, I've, I imagine, what has to be various stages of acceptance, uh, maybe grief. What other kinds of emotions and and places did you travel to and through? Well, there's a wide range of emotions that goes with this discovery. The first one is uh, surprise, obviously. And then I went through a period of time where um, I thought that I was a freak. I thought I was one of a kind. And I didn't know if there were other people out there in the world like this. Um, a bit of depression with losing the connection to your family. And I have to say, my family is wonderful, especially on my dad's side, because they were very accepting of it. And you can probably hear the emotion in my voice. Absolutely. Take your time, Mark. My aunts and uncles are still my aunts and uncles, and my cousins are still my cousins. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but there's other family out there that I don't know about, and that's that's the really hard part. I have met one cousin on my biological father's side, and she was very welcoming. And there's an extensive family out there that I, I just don't know. So, yeah, the emotions are—there's a whole realm of, of emotions that go along with it. And uh, I talked earlier about wondering who I was, and it's a— it's a terrible feeling to be lost and not knowing who you are truly. 
Um, but I still realize that I am who I am, and, I, and I'm not going to let go of that. But there's this interesting side of me, half of me actually, uh, that I don't really know truly. Did you ever grow up, um, you know, this has been almost 50 years of, of life, not knowing and then having this surprise. Did you ever have any inklings that you might not be the biological son of your parents? My mother explained to me back when I was a teenager that I had been conceived through artificial insemination. And I think it was back when the first test tube baby was was conceived because um, that was in the news in the late 70s, I think, early 80s. Uh, so she explained to me that uh, it was interesting how my conception was done. But no, uh, I, I didn't have an inkling that dad was not my biological father. Right. But of course, your mother is your mother Correct. biologically, of course. She carries Correct. You. But but yeah. there for a while, I didn't know that for sure because I hadn't seen any pictures of her being pregnant with me. And obviously, uh, I assume that was the case. Uh, but DNA analysis has proven that my mother is actually my mother. Yes. So back to you, Courtney. Tell us about, you know, this is one narrative, obviously a very painful narrative. And, uh, you know, we we hear Mark's story and we only imagine what if that had happened to um, us, uh, you know, put yourself in his shoes. But but what other kinds of cases that involve fertility fraud can you call to mind for us? And how widespread is it? Yeah, I think we only know the tip of the iceberg of fertility fraud. Um, doctor donor deception, like what happened with Mark, is something that's in the news right now because of the documentary Our Father on Netflix, a doctor who fathered dozens and dozens of kids in in a small area. Um, but we see fertility fraud happen when sperm that is not what the couple picked out is used, when eggs that is not what the couple picked out is used, when clinics keep faulty records. So there's like a deception, and then there's faultiness. And all of that is fraud. You know, <laughs> having bad records is not an excuse. Um, but we also see misattributed parentage, which is a little different than fertility fraud, in the idea of a child being born out of a one-night stand, or a child being born out of rape, or a child who was adopted, but that was hidden from them. Um, and right to know, we'll speak to that, I'm sure, and how difficult that is for the subject. There is a belief in this world of fertility fraud that people have a right to understand what their genetic heritage is. And that is the theme that runs through this whole thing. I will add here, Ben, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which does not take sides on these bills, but keeps track of them, has said there is no example of doctors using their own sperm in the 21st century, which is, I would say, up for debate. But more than that, because of direct-to-consumer DNA testing, that's not really how we're seeing fertility fraud necessarily anymore. It's not doctors using their own sperm anymore, but it is people looking at freezers of unclaimed embryos and thinking, yeah, I'll just use one of these. Or it's people keeping faulty records. Fertility fraud exists and it is occurring today, even if it is not as sensational as a doctor using his own sperm. Mark, in closing, I wanted to give you a chance to react to Iowa's new law, which will hopefully stop this practice. Um, undoubtedly, we'll uncover other other cases of it. 
this uh, new law in in the course of its passing coincided with the, your birthday, I understand. That's correct, yes. Tell us that story. Was this after the, the both chambers passed it? Yes. The vote in the House occurred on my birthday. Give us your reaction to that, that now, uh, in the future, hopefully people won't feel the pain that you've you've had to feel and, and how it's reshaped your life, the, the painful uh, experience that has been. Well, it was a wonderful feeling uh, having the Iowa legislature and eventually the governor affirm that what was done in the past was wrong and making a law to protect victims of fertility fraud. It was just a very rewarding position for me to be in. And it was a very good birthday present, yes. Courtney, in in really researching so many different cases uh, like this of fertility fraud, it it leads you, sort of takes you back in time, and, and some of the answers will be known, some will never be known, right? Exactly. And I think when we look at Mark's story, the reality is by the time he learned of the surprise, most people in the story were dead or were passing away. His dad, Rodney, was passing away. His mother was soon to pass away. And his biological father, the doctor, had long passed away. So there are secrets. There are questions. There are ideas that he will never have access to knowing. And part of that is we can never know what happened in that room. We have the evidence. We've got DNA. We've got photos. We've got stories. But the actual black and white answers, those are now lost for Mark. And that is such a difficult thing to wrap your mind around as you go through this journey of figuring out who you are after a surprise. Yeah. Courtney Crowder, Iowa columnist, senior writer for the Des Moines Register. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you so much. And Mark Hansen, I can't thank you enough for having the courage to tell a very, very difficult story, uh, the subject, one of the subjects of uh, Courtney's articles on this. Mark, thank you uh, very much for, for sharing with the IPR's audience. Well, thank you very much for having me today. More of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, our focus is fertility fraud and Iowa's new law against it. Uh, This spring, Governor Reynolds signed a bill that makes fertility fraud illegal. Physicians in at least 20 states have been accused of inseminating patients with their own sperm. If you were with us in the first half hour, we had Des Moines Register columnist Courtney Crowder. She's been writing about this. She profiled another guest we had in our first half hour, uh, Iowan Mark Hansen. He's a proponent of the new law who found out a decade ago that his mother's physician was actually his biological father. But it's broader than doctor-donor deception. In the last three years, six states have passed laws. Another nine have introduced bills as a direct uh, result of activism in this area. Now, Iowa's new law makes the crime a felony, punishable by up to five years in prison. The offender is forced to register also as a Tier 3 sex offender. Later this half hour, Cara Rubenstein Dayerin of Right to Know with her story of a DNA surprise. Her nonprofit helped write Iowa's legislation and supports people impacted by DNA surprises and misattributed parentage experiences worldwide. But before we talk with Cara, let's talk with another proponent of the new law, Jody Girard. Jody discovered her true parentage through a DNA test a few years ago. Jody, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
This is wonderful. You joined us. Uh, you're 49 years old. You grew up on a farm near Collins. Uh, that's north of Des Moines in central Iowa. You live outside of Collins uh, still today. Let's go back to September of 2018. I understand that was the day you learned of your parentage. Uh, how did you make that discovery? Um, yes. Yeah, so I did an Ancestry.com, a home DNA test and discovered that the father that raised me was not my biological father. Um, My story is a little different than Mark's because um, I'm not donor conceived. Um, And I was just never told the story of how I came to be. And it's going to seem a little odd because I was raised by uh, two white parents who loved me and I, I had a great childhood. So I don't have like some people's stories where, you know, they grew up, you know, with being treated differently. I, however, looked very different. <laughs> so um, I don't really know why I didn't ask a lot of questions other than um, I, I guess the best answer I have is when I was little, I didn't know how to ask that question. And then once I got older and realized um, there's only a certain number of reasons that could be the answer. Um, I didn't know how to ask that question of my parents, who, like I said, knew loved me. Um, I lost the dad who raised me in 2014, and that was very hard on me. And so I don't know if that's what prompted me a few years later. Um, but anyway, September 28th, 2018, I get an email from Ancestry, and I'm looking at my ethnic makeup, and I am 50% African American. So that was obviously too much for, you know, some random gene or (laughs) just some freak accident. You've been listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.